0: Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Chalmers and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So last week uh, on Cognitive Revolution, I talked about how I had failed at a major milestone of my PhD, my transfer, my, uh, my qualifying exam, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that hit me hard. And, um, you know, what I talked about in that week was that even though that was a big uh, disappointment, uh, it was also an opportunity to get my shit together, to get back on track, to use that external feedback to uh, motivate myself to perform at a higher level than I have been, honestly, throughout the whole pandemic. It's been hard for me to to feel motivated to do my uh, my research, my PhD, and all that sort of stuff at the level that I'd like to be. And the good news uh, coming this week is that I'm doing it. I so far I've I've been by far the most productive week of my entire PhD. Actually, feeling the the pressure of, of of getting it done, and you know, like being focused on what the goals are, and, and digging into all the the data, and, and doing all the analysis. You know, like I've I've been doing it. That's the good news. The, the other side of that, fuck, it's kind of boring. Um, not the work itself, but doing it during the pandemic, man. Just sitting there all day and, you know, I guess part of it's just operating at that level of sort of like cognitive focus for so long when it's just you and the computer and what you're working on and just digging deeper into it. It's a slog, man, and you know it has been throughout the 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 pandemic. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why it's it's it felt harder to focus is it just, you know, it's it's just boring to be sitting here all day with the only alternative to be to sit somewhere else and look at a different screen. Uh, and yeah, so it, it, that's still a struggle um and I know a lot of people are feeling like that right now. And so uh for me, the name of the game is satisficing, figuring out what my goals are and not necessarily optimizing to get there, but to do whatever it takes to hit those goals without worrying about doing it, uh, in the most efficient, uh, optimized way possible. So I just, you know, uh, that's, that's where I'm at this week and I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, it, it's, it feels good to be bouncing back, um, but you know, it's tough to maintain that level of uh, really intensity uh, during the pandemic of just sitting at home, looking at stuff on the computer. So uh, today's guest is Anil Seth. Uh, and he, it was really fun to talk to. I really, I really liked uh, Anil and I got interested in his work through Um, his research in consciousness, which has always been an interest of mine. We have several consciousness-related people on the show so far, including uh, Axel Claremonts, Heather Berlin, and Christoph Koch. So, um, Anil is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, uh, but that's also where he did his PhD. He's got a very uh, technical background where um, he studied computer science and artificial intelligence he also did his postdoctoral fellowship at the neuroscience institute in san diego which uh, is where he came across a lot of interesting people who were studying consciousness at that time Um, a big uh, thing to direct you to is that he's got a book coming out Uh, i believe it might be different for us and uk but at some time uh, at the end of 20 or to the end of summer of 2021, I believe August 31st, 2021, that's being you, a new science of consciousness. Uh, keep a lookout for that. I think it's going to be really good. So at any rate, uh, we talk a lot about his personal experiences and his approach to consciousness, uh, how he tries to take a scientific perspective to something that fundamentally tries to deny scientific inquiry. So uh, without further ado, I give to you Anil Seth. So the first question I like to start off with is, what was the first time you can remember getting really excited about an idea that made you think, okay, wow, I have to sit down and and dig into this?
1: The first time I got excited about it, I think it was probably um, in physics, Uh, Yeah, I think. In common with a lot of people, physics always seemed to be the, the purest of the sciences. and When I was at school, I thought that physics would be the royal road to understanding every mystery. And so I was quite keen to to pursue it. And some of the ideas that came up in, in physics were just so weird and counterintuitive. Uh, so I think the first time I, I encountered an idea that I proactively dug into much more than just doing the, you know, the work that was the homework that I was being given at school. It's probably when I heard about or looked into uh, relativity theory. I just wanted to get my head around that. I mean, I, I don't think I succeeded, and I still think it's very, very head spinning. But I do remember probably at age of about 16, um, 17, trying to understand, at least conceptually, what was going on in special relativity
0: and then so when did you lose the faith there what uh what did you what did you, what was what was the transition out of physics like well I, in some ways I've, I've not left i mean i'm, I'm not a, a a good yeah
1: i'm not an accomplished physicist at all i so but i when i went to study my undergraduate degree i already already knew that i was interested in, in consciousness but i didn't expect that i would st- necessarily be able to to do that for a career i was interested in it but i thought that physics was the thing to study whatever you're whatever i was interested in scientifically it was the thing to do so i actually went to college to study physics uh, and i started college at cambridge king's college and the way undergraduate education works in cambridge for the sciences is you can't specialize until the third year so i was taking uh a bunch of courses um i was taking physics and well it was mainly quantitative physics and maths but also molecular biology and um and geology and as i got exposed to these other scientific approaches especially biology you know i suddenly that became also just fascinating just thinking about mechanisms by which cells work and i remember again an idea that really really impressed me was uh, I think it was the, the lactose operon There, some sort of classic thing in molecular biology the details of which escape me now but it just goes through the whole process of, of transcription of DNA and, and it just seems like just the fact that these things were understandable um, made biology much more appealing it seemed to be a mechanistic science now rather than just a sort of descriptive science that we've been taught at school but there's a very honest answer as well as sort of my drift away from physics happened because I uh, I sort of hit a ceiling or at least I thought I'd hit a ceiling about my ability. And the thing with math and physics, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people is that it seems when you can do it, it's really easy. It doesn't take much time. You know, you just, you can you have a problem and you can, you can solve it. You know how to do it. Um, and that was true for me all the way up until, the second year of my undergraduate education, at which point it became almost impossibly difficult and i just i just couldn 't do it maybe i 'd have broken through and been able to do it again, but it suddenly felt that it was not where my strengths lay, and also it seemed that addressing the questions I was really interested in was so far off if i was you know, we were studying things like electromagnetic um, fields and and basics of quantum mechanics and, and so on. Um, I can't remember what else we were studying because I didn't do very well in the exam that year. But it it seemed a very long way to get from these topics to thinking a, a, about consciousness. And the opportunity arose to study um, experimental psychology in the second year as one of my options. And so when I took that on as an option, it was it was amazing. It was like, oh, this is this is what I want to do. And of course, that had never been an option at school for me. There was nothing like neuroscience or psychology or cognitive science that I could have encountered before that. I didn't really even know that cognitive science was a thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel fortunate to have had that path that allowed me to do
0: different subjects in my undergrad education. You know, I'm sympathetic with a lot of that. Uh, Certainly, I think that the physics to cognitive science slash neuroscience one uh, is a pretty common route. And my sort of pet theory about it is that you get drawn into physics because it offers this framework, this comprehensive framework for telling you everything you might want to know about the physical objective world out there. And then... Uh, you get into it, and through any really number of reasons, whether it's that ceiling. For me, for me, the ceiling came in physics 101. That was where the, the uh, that was where the physics ceiling came in for me. I started off uh, undergrad as a physics major, and I did not make it very far. Uh, but um, but no, then 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 you realize, uh, oh well, actually, uh, what would really be cool is if we could have a big, comprehensive, unifying theory of the internal subjective world, right? Um, that's what it was like for me. And uh, I think that that's pretty common for, for a lot of uh, people who started off in physics, absconded into some form of psychology, cognitive science, uh, or neuroscience. So you took that first psychology class, right? And then uh, was there a turning point where this idea of consciousness really became you know, sort of the forefront idea for you?
1: Well it was always the forefront in the back of my mind if that makes any sense I and mean, it was always sort of the guiding mystery that, that i that I wanted to understand and and like many people who've re- who've been lucky enough to continue thinking and working about this, there are at least two aspects to that that mystery one is it's it's the mystery of it as a scientific question like what would be a good answer? can we understand consciousness in the same way that we've been able to understand life in the same way that we've been on, a, on able to understand you know, large-scale cosmology and quantum physics and can we actually figure this out there's a there's a compelling scientific question there and there's also the personal relevance too it's, it's you know i want to understand who i am and what happens when i die and what happened before i was born and the nature of self and the nature of free will these are i don't think there's any other subject that combines the personal and the sort of cosmic in the same
0: set of questions here here's but, a question for oh, sorry uh I, I have a question for you just sort of interjecting here as someone who is familiar with physics and consciousness do you think that it's possible that the you, you one of the things you said was uh what would a solution even look like do you think it's possible that a solution uh would be sort of like einstein's relativity where one person comes along has a great year, smashes out a couple papers, barely cites any other previous papers because they're not even worth citing, uh, and then boom, we have this new framework that's going to last for the next, you know, uh, century or something like that. Do you see that happening with with consciousness? I guess the thing with those sorts of advances, they're very hard to predict in 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 advance, right? They're
1: very hard to forecast. I mean, that. It also seems unlikely, given the way science happens these days. Now, I mean, you can never exclude that, that some genius will arrive. Maybe, maybe is already moving among us. In fact, maybe there's already some ideas that have been published that will we will look back on and say, "Oh yeah, that was on the right track. That that was right all along. We just didn't sort of see it uh, sufficiently deeply at the time." But I don't know. It's 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 possible. From my own perspective i think it's it's not the sort of approach that you know I, that's certainly i take because i'm certainly not that person and i think trying to solve the whole problem from first principles in a different way than anybody has done is almost certainly going to fail it might not if there's the right person and it turns out to be that sort of problem it might succeed but it's sort of a bad bet to uh to pursue it personally for certainly for me and i I think there's a number of possibilities how how it will go. I mean one possibility is that uh, you know, even more closely aligned with physics that that we just need a new kind of physics that the current physics perspective we have on matter um and its relationship to biology and its relationship to mental states is just the wrong kind of physics. It doesn't account for the subjective in a way that a future physics. and people have argued this a number of times most notably in in various appeals to quantum mechanics there's always seemed to be this idea that some version of quantum mechanics will allow us to address uh questions about consciousness and subjectivity in a way that that classical physics does not i mean we'll come back to that i think but i've seen not much evidence that that's actually the case but perhaps some other advance in basic physics will shed light on this, on this mystery in a way that we just can't conceive at the moment. But, you know, on the other hand, I think there's a lot of progress that can be made in understanding consciousness, more or less with the tools that we have, or, or just sort of advancing in the ways we're already going. And then it becomes an open question about whether that approach, which would be boosted by the arrival of a genius, but which may not require that, uh, whether that in the end will provide a satisfactory solution to this problem of consciousness, or whether there will always still be some residue of mystery residue of what David Chalmers calls the hard problem left over.
0: I personally love the people who submit the the quantum theory uh, hypothesis, because it's basically like, here's this one big mystery. Here's another big mystery. Maybe the one mystery that we have uh this framework for is actually the answer to this other big mystery. And sort of this this sort of suspicion of big theory isomorphism. Ooh, big fan of that. Yeah, um, no, it's it's I think it's the the
1: it's a fallacious syllogism, is the way I like to think of it. It's yeah. the argument of fallacious syllogism. Big mystery, big mystery, they must be related.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um all right, so here here's a question. Right, so you you have your interest in consciousness in the background of the forefront of your mind, it's always sort of this big looming question. Who's the first person that you read or the first f- framework that you encounter that you're like, oh, this person's on to something and I'm going to sort of pick up where they left off and, and, and start building uh, building from, from that point. Is there anyone you can look to or any, any paper you can look to, any book you can look to and, and, and say something like that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that actually comes later. I mean, at the time... So just the thing, I think one important context for this is that when I was studying psychology at Cambridge, this was this was in the early and mid 1990s, and there really wasn't that much going on about consciousness research. At least that trickled down to my exposed my experiences in undergrad. There, uh, there was a lot that inspired me, and and in fact, I was sort of reverse inspired by my. Uh, tutor there, who was Nicholas McIntosh, who was sort of one of the leading behaviorists in 20th century psychology. He was the head of department at Cambridge Psychology and happened was at the same college I was at, so I got my tutorials from him. Um, in a sense, he's the sort of furthest away that, if you, if you think of psychology on a spectrum, he'd be the furthest away from, from consciousness, really trying to understand animal behavior in terms of learning theory. So it was sort of training initially with him. Um, and realizing how different that approach to psychology was, uh, was uh, a very a strong impetus towards finding a different way to do it while still taking on board the, as much as I could, the lessons from behaviorist psychology. Uh, but the first, you know, when it comes to consciousness research specifically, you know, I'd read, uh, like many, I'd read the Oliver Sacks books and they're beautiful and they're highly inspirational but they weren't the sort of thing that I could see myself doing You know, I did actually do a third year project in neuropsychology with Rose McCarthy uh, and that was interesting we worked with a couple of patients but the idea of doing that for a PhD didn't seem that compelling at the time it was still very cognitive focused and Depended on finding interesting patients, which I which I just didn't like the idea of quite so much. Now, the first idea that that I thought ah this is different, and this is getting to the heart of this question in a way that I haven't seen before was when I first read about Giulio Tononi and Gerald Edelman's work on complexity and consciousness, and this was towards the end of my PhD now, um, in the late 1990s, and. They'd had a paper in Science 1998, which I read, and then a book that they jointly authored called The Universe of Consciousness, uh, which I read in 2000. And this was the first time I'd read about an approach which tried to go beyond mere correlation of brain regions or activity patterns in the brain and conscious experience with trying to explain what... Conscious experiences alike in terms of the properties of mechanisms. So going beyond correlation towards explanation, and they did it using quite a formal, quite a mathematical approach. But it was an approach that was you know, was it was within my grasp to understand the, the formalism there. And I thought this this is exciting. You know, this is really I now understand something about consciousness that I didn't before, and I can see uh, a way in which this can be
0: pursued. Right. And part of the, so I imagine that is, th- those were the germs for integrated information theory. And so uh, th- one of the things that is great about that theory is that it gives you an empirical prediction where you find, what is it? Inf- uh, integration and differentiation of, you know, streams of information. I'm giving just a very poor conceptual label to that. But when you find these certain elements, then you expect to find uh, a degree of consciousness. And uh, that actually gives you an empirical uh, prediction—not one that would satisfy your behaviorist uh, mentor, but uh, one one that gives you something to look for in a way that other previous theories of consciousness perhaps perhaps didn't. Very cool.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's so one of the the strong prediction is indeed that these things are sufficient for consciousness. You know, in this, a non-zero amount of integrated information is sufficient. When I came across these ideas. It was before uh, Giulio Tononi had developed what we now think of as this this theory of consciousness, which does make these very strong predictions about sufficiency. When he was working with with Edelman earlier, the claims were slightly weaker in a sense, but, but perhaps... They weren't weaker for me and they weren't less interesting for me. They, they were weaker in a sense that, that I found them and still find them very compelling. And it was the idea that, okay, every conscious experience is, uh, integrated. We experience every, every scene that we experience is a unified whole, um, with many, many different things going on, but also every conscious experience rules out the appearance of a vast number of alternative experiences. So it's highly informative in that sense. So there's this unique thing about conscious experiences which is that they combine being integrated with being very informative. And that's a description of the phenomenology of consciousness. Description of what it's like for what a conscious experience and the first thing about this idea was it was much more uh, informative about what you're trying to explain with a theory of consciousness not just what happens when you fall asleep but but you're trying to explain what a conscious experience is like and this was an approach that took that seriously took the phenomenological aspect seriously and then you can unpack that formalism in in various ways in terms of mechanisms you can say well what if that's what conscious experiences are like at the level of phenomenology then the mechanisms in the brain or wherever else should also have those properties you said the word isomorphism before. You should have some kind of homology or isomorphism between the mechanism and the phenomenology. That's now an interesting theory that, that stops treating consciousness as one big scary mystery but now tries to account for its properties in terms of mechanisms. And uh, so that that was, to me, very exciting. And I read the, the book, and the book had some interesting ideas about how, well, circuits within the cortex have this kind of property that that can be associated with this balance of integration and differentiation, loosely we call it complexity, but neural circuits in the cerebellum, for instance, do not. They're like a lot of independent circuits. And we know that the cerebellum is much less involved in conscious experience than the cortex, despite having three times more neurons. So you can already, using this idea, make sense um, you can make some interesting postdictions. You can explain facts in a, in a natural way, uh, but you can also make some experimental predictions as well. That if you have measures that are sensitive to this kind of balance, that that should you know, they should be sensitive to changes in conscious level when people fall asleep or go under anesthesia and so on. So yeah, I, I thought it was a it was a turning point for me um, because it it made the problem. Finesse the problem in a way that i thought was really getting at the the essence of it about what the phenomenology of consciousness is like
0: you mentioned a couple minutes ago oliver sachs and his beautiful narratives the converse of of the beautiful narratives thing is that oliver sachs was one of the worst theoreticians of all time uh uh who the guy couldn't build a theory to to save his life um, but he loved theorists. Uh, he loved Freud. Uh, he loved um, lots of people who built great theories. But in his, in his autobiography, um, On the Move, he talks about his very favorite theorist of uh, the brain of all time, uh, Gerard Edelman. Um, I believe the same one who was among your mentors when you went to San Diego. And I think particularly uh, the book Neural Darwinism, if I'm not mixing up my my uh, Edelman's and all, and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, so I, I'm curious about him as a figure uh, since I don't know uh, as much about him as I would like. Uh, what, uh, yeah, just can you say a little bit about what it was like working with him, what your experience at San Diego was like and sort of what that whole, because Francis Crick was, was also there at the time. So what was that whole atmosphere like
1: yeah that's right it was it was a great place to be in and, and um i did get to meet oliver sacks on a couple of occasions because you're right it's the same edelman and he did come to visit uh the institute a few times and yeah his strength was was certainly in descriptions of case studies and his beautifully eloquent descriptions of case studies but you know i think there was some there was a theoretical drive behind that. Now, he didn't construct grand theories, but but his dis- discussions about them were, were, were very interesting. I think he got them and he understood and understood the importance. So I thought, yeah. Um, there are plenty of people who are just not even interested in theories, and, and Oliver Sacks was not one of those people.
0: I think that's where um, my argument is, is stemming from, is that uh, the amount of skill and talent that he clearly has as an individual, off the charts. Amount of drive uh, to... Um, uh you know, understand fundamental aspects of, of the brain off the charts. Ability to construct grand theories, hilariously not on par with the others. Uh I just think that's funny because we all know Oliver Sacks is this narrative genius. We don't talk enough about how when he makes theoretical asides, it's like that doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, not not necessarily important.
1: But in and Edelman is definitely different character so I think that may have been one of the things that, that affirmed their their close uh, friendship and, and relationship. And Edelman, uh, yeah, so I, I worked worked for him at the Neuroscience Institute in San Diego uh, from 2001 until about 2007 so that was uh, the longish postdoctoral period for me not just with Edelman, Edelman was a director of the institute so I worked more directly with, with other people there but I I saw him most days and, and worked with him reasonably closely on a number of projects. He, he sadly died in, in 2014. Uh, and yeah, Edelman, along with, along with people like Francis Crick, he also mentions, uh, was really one of the people who had, who, whose efforts had brought consciousness back into the fold of the mind and brain sciences. And there was always the, the kind of joke that they'd already won their Nobel Prize. I mean, Adelman won his Nobel Prize for work on the immune system and, and, and Francis Crick, of course, for discovery of the structure of DNA um, with uh, Rosalind Franklin and Watson. Franklin didn't get the prize, which is terrible. But, um, so they'd already established their reputation, so it was fine for them to go off and study consciousness because they had that capital. But importantly, it was them doing that and, and mentoring other people, so you know, Christoph Koch was mentored by Francis Crick and has become one of the most influential neuroscientists, not only about consciousness, but in general. But the fact that his primary interest is about consciousness, I think, is a remarkable thing. Here you have one of the, the broadly speaking, influential neuroscientists who's not
0: shy about the fact that consciousness is the central question. Uh, not shy that- is pretty much the understatement of the year in reference to Christoph Koch.
1: Yeah, he is. He's not a shy person, um, and his interest in consciousness is certainly not hidden, and that's great. But that would have been so hard to imagine, you know, in, bef- before him, basically, before he started working with with Crick and and publishing their uh, their papers in the early nineteen nineties on neural correlates. Uh, so, Edelman had done done a lot just in reshaping that that landscape, uh, and. The thing I think that in my I mean I have memory, many memories of Adelman. I was very very lucky to to work with him. He wasn't always an easy person to work with, um, and but he he was very multidisciplinary, and that's something I, I really appreciated. I mean, even beyond the sciences, he was he was trained as a violin player. He could have been an expert violin player. He had this encyclopedic knowledge of the classics, of literature, and the arts, and it was very polymathic. Um, and so would bring lots of people together at this Neuroscience Institute from different backgrounds and from uh, different disciplines. And it kind of worked. I mean, it's the sort of thing that's never going to work as well in practice as you can make it sound on paper to have this sort of institute with all this interdisciplinary stuff going on. Uh, but, yeah, it did. It It did work to some extent. We would have lunch there every day. And there would be conversations around the tables that would mix people with expertise in fly neurophysiology with people like me working, you know, my work, my job there initially was to, to help build um, robots that were based loosely on this idea of neural Darwinism uh, to accomplish cognitively challenging tasks at, at the time. So there'd be lots of interesting conversations that, that would cross these disciplinary boundaries and Edelman deserves a lot of credit for, for setting things up that way. I think everyone struggled a little bit trying to understand Edelman's own theory. It's a very grand and fascinating theory um, but it, it was it was quite hard to, to grasp quite what it was saying or what predictions it would make um, but I think it was a very rich framework for thinking about neuroscience and actually I think it's probably a theoretical framework, the time of which is still uh, to come, because the essence of neural Darwinism is to think about neural development and neural dynamics from an evolutionary standpoint, where you have principles of variation and selection happening that shape neural structure and neural activity. Uh, There's something I think very right about this, uh, but sort of the, the windows, the experimental windows we have on large scale population dynamics haven't really been able to finesse or test these ideas very strongly yet. But now with things like optogenetics, where you can look at large numbers of neurons simultaneously, I think some of the ideas in Darwinism may, may actually be more applicable now than they were uh, 20 years ago.
0: I would love to, to believe that that's the case. Uh, I would again. My ceiling here was pretty low. I think I got about as far as the preface on Neural Darwinism, uh, but I would love to see someone come along, really intimately understand uh, what was the trying to be conveyed in that book, and be able to employ it in today's technological landscape. Hopefully, tomorrow's technological landscape.
1: You know, I have to one, one thing I would just jump in there to say is that yes, uh, Edelman's books. Are perhaps not as clear as they might be compared to the way he speaks. So I, I don't know. I haven't. I should have a look actually. But I always found when I heard Edelman give lectures about his ideas, they came across with a, cr- a clarity um, that was not always evident in in the text of neural Darwinism, which does get pretty heavy. You know, I'll, I have to admit there was a trilogy of books: Neural Darwinism, um, what was the second one? Bright Air, Brilliant Fire, and then. Uh, um, I think Tocco Biology. Uh, great titles. Great, uh, <laughs> great titles, and a lot in these books. I mean, they 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 reward close
0: attention, but but they're not easy. Well, there's and actually so someone cool
1: get a bit lost.
0: There's another person who's a similar one of these figures who brought together a great interdisciplinary department uh, named Talcott Parsons, who was a sociologist in the mid uh, 20th century, and basically his scheme was developed the comprehensive theory of 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 the social system of society and, and the interconnections between everyone in it and he was very similar where he like his way of conveying this information was to create these vast just tomes which were basically full of jargon because in order to get across his unified theory he had to you know start from from first principles that sort of stuff and there was consensus that it was the same sort of thing where it was basically impossible to read his books though if you did get to it you would get a lot out of it but it was very very difficult to get into them. but the lectures were clear my sort of theory on that is that you know when we talk to another human even if it's in the context of a a podium and, a, and an auditorium and a lecture, uh, we actually have to communicate to them in a language that they understand. Whereas when we write, and this is one of the reasons why writing is so difficult, um, you don't have another person there that you're specifically trying to communicate to, and therefore you can rely more heavily on jargon. Um, and so the people who really build up their theories with jargon at its core are able to use that throughout the book but are not able to use that as quite as much as a, as a walking device um, when, they're, when they're in front of people. It's my theory. Um, yeah, no, makes sense. Uh, okay, so here's a question for you. The, the, um, the San Diego Neuroscience Institutes sounds really interesting at that time. Like you said, a lot of different people doing different things sort of working towards a roughly common, uh, I guess, well, I guess probably not everyone's working on conscious. Anyway, the point is you are uh, now the head of the Sackler Center at Sus- Sussex. Um, you know, not a totally dissimilar uh, venture in trying to, you know, bring, a, bring across uh, different people doing different things. So is, is there anything that you learned during your time at San Diego about the pros and cons or how to or not to run such a an institute that you take uh, now as someone who is in essentially the Edelman position, um, trying to you know, yeah. What have you What have you learned from that? And what have you What have you been a- applying, if anything? That's a good question. I mean, firstly, I'm definitely not
1: really in the, the Edelman position. I mean, we we have a, we have a grant uh, to do some research. It would be, be wonderful to have a whole uh, institute, but that's not happening quite yet. Um, sorry, Sackler Center, did uh, I did I say institute did I Forgive No, it's it's if... a Sackler Center, but but effectively yeah. we don't have we it's not a building or anything. It's just it's just a grant yeah. that we can use to support some you know, it's great. I and mean, then we sort of support some postdocs and, and PhD students that that way. Um, but the Neurosciences Institute was it was its own actual physical place. It had buildings and labs and auditorium and, and it was much bigger. You know, 40, 40 scientists there working there. And it, indeed, not, in fact, very few working on consciousness. There was probably only a few of us um, who cultivated that interest there. And, and even those who were, were also working on other things while we were there. Um, and, and I think that that was important, actually. I mean, it's, it's, it was important to have that diversity of activity, uh, because you know, people's careers do go in, in different directions, and there's 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 a lot of in one of the other people who went through the neuroscience institute that that I've been an inspiration to me. He was he left just before I got there. It was Olaf Sporns, who then went on to basically found connectomics and coined the term the connectome, and his work is definitely not in the arena of, of consciousness, but his impact. On neuroscience has been has been enormous. Um, but getting back to your question, the similarity between the the way I still try to to do things and what happened there uh, is this emphasis on multidisciplinarity, and this is a very very tricky thing um, because science to do science well requires depth in any particular. Aspects of what you do. If you, if you don't know the territory, you're, you're gonna make some mistakes. Um, and so if you try to be interdisciplinary, then you're setting yourself up for a fall because you, you know, you're not gonna be able to know everything about everything, or even about two things, or even about one thing, but certainly not two things. Um on the other hand, the disciplinary boundaries that we have are to some extent artificial. At least, you know, when you start off, or when you're studying at school, or when you take a degree, they're a little bit artificial. And there's absolutely no reason or guarantee that the phenomena in nature will carve themselves open to you along disciplinary boundaries either. When you come to a question like consciousness, it's intrinsically interdisciplinary. If you, it involves philosophy, it involves neuroscience, it involves psychiatry, it involves computational modeling, brain imaging, lots of things are, are relevant and, and no single approach is going to be uh, sufficient so trying to create and maintain an environment that hits a a workable balance between being interdisciplinary um, yet not making the mistake of insufficient depth in, in what you do that that's that's the tricky that's the tricky challenge and it really returns just to take further steps back, I mean, I think this is one thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about because one of the real struggles that I had earlier on was this idea that scientific career necessarily involved massive specialization, that you started off broad and it was okay to be broad to begin with, but that the further you went, the more specialized you had to become so that eventually you would know more than anybody else about a tiny thing that nobody else knew about. It all cared about but that was the way to make progress and you could see this especially in the uk this is this is built into the way the education system works you start off studying many things and then uh, you make some choices for your gcses which you, you study between sort of 11 and 16 and then then you throw away most things and even at that point in the uk system you do between three and four subjects at a level and really, at that point, you're asked to make a choice between are you going to study the arts or are you going to study the sciences? Maybe if you're lucky, you might smuggle an art subject in along with with the sciences, which is what I did. I wanted to do history, but I wasn't allowed to because the timetable didn't work. So I had to do economics. Um, but at least it was something that allowed me to write. And I think that was really critical because just to go back to where we started the training in physics, has been very useful because even though it got too hard for me and even though I drifted away from it being the central thing, having a background in physics has allowed me now to still work with people who are much better mathematicians and physicists and have mathematics and physics as part of what we do in the centre. And in the same way, an early training in in writing, just doing it for an A-level even, but then as an undergrad, if you do psychology, it's largely an essay writing subject for, for exams and so on, and studying literature. And writing is is so essential. And you, as you go through a scientific career, so much more about it just becomes an exercise in writing, whether it's writing a paper, writing a grant application, writing for the, for the public. Uh, you have to be a good writer. And... So I think it's so necessary to combine to be multidisciplinary, both in the sort of skill sets, but also uh, in the topics. And so I was I was very afraid of of continuing in science because I I really thought that I don't want to specialize that much. I mean, that's just boring. That's just going to be unsatisfying. I think I was probably not doing justice to what can be achieved through this specialization and how rewarding it can be. But it also turned out to be a bit of an unfounded fear even though it's hard there are routes through science which don't require that specialization in fact depend on not specializing and and i think that's kind of what i've done i've sort of meandered around different disciplines um which has the price that i'm weak in any single one of them uh, but has had the benefit that I've been able to remain interested in many of them and find ways to bring them together in combinations uh that would be difficult if you were specializing just one or the
0: other. Yeah, I think that that's such a deep question about how to balance specialization and depth. Uh and especially how it's structured in the education system since it's uh, very different between the US and the UK. And in the US you specialize much later. Um, no doubt that there's um, impacts there. I, I, I'm interested to explore that, um, but I definitely want to ask you about um, your career with your more public-facing uh, uh, enterprises. So was there a moment where you were like, oh, you know, I really want to build writing and communicating with the general public into what I'm doing in addition to science for scientists? Did, was there a moment where you decided that, or is that, what, what did that look like for you?
1: It has become a more prominent part of, of what I do. And for a couple of reasons, I've, I've always thought there's, a, there's an obligation, not for every scientist to be active in public engagement, for, but for a significant minority to do so. Uh, we need to explain what we're doing and why it's important. And the obligation runs both ways. I, and this gets back to the interdisciplinary thing a bit. I found that by trying to talk about research and consciousness, and not just my own work and my labs, but you know, just the general state of the field, by, by talking about that to different kinds of audiences, um, you get new ideas and you get new collaborations and new things uh, come up. And you, you learn about your own subject too. It, it's... Uh, the exercise. I've just been finishing writing a, a trade book, a book intended for the for the pub, general public, and by explaining your own ideas, you understand them better yourself. And so there's there there are multiple rewards. There's this yeah. There's the obligation. You think you should do it because many reasons. It's taxpayer funded, and you you can make an impact that way. You can encourage new generations of students and so on to uh, to continue studying um you will learn about other disciplines which is valuable and you'll also learn about your own discipline too which is uh which is really valuable and underrated and it's also fun I mean I I just started grabbing a couple of early opportunities initially as a postdoc in San Diego but not really until I got to Sussex and moved to Brighton moved back to Brighton it's where I did my PhD too um where there seemed to be more Uh, opportunities for giving short talks in pubs and bars things like we had cafe scientifique and things called nerd night i could go as as just a starting lecturer and talk a little bit about consciousness and you're i'm very lucky in that subject because everybody has got an opinion about consciousness um and so it's, it's not difficult to spark people's interest or or get their engagement um and then i just did more and more of this stuff and and it's it it was fun it continues to be fun but it's a lot of work to do well and so one of the things i've been more concerned with lately since 2016 i've i've been a an engagement fellow with the Wellcome trust um and one of the surprising things there was i i thought that all the other fellows would also be people more or less like me so scientists who wanted to uh, formalize the public do do their public engagement have a bit more support for it basically get paid so we could do we could do less admin or or teaching within the department um, for the time it was taking to do the public engagement but actually I was the only one who was in that position most people were public engagement professionals of one sort or another who were developing their um, portfolios and their skills through this program which is great but still left me with this feeling that it's, it's really not as easy or supported as, as it should be for scientists to dedicate the time and effort necessary to do public engagement well, because it does take time.
0: Absolutely. So we were talking about, so one, one part of doing it well is what we were talking about earlier, which is being able to write well. So I'm curious, who are the people who you studied, uh, maybe as a template for constructing a good trade book in psychology and neuroscience and all that sort of stuff? Were there people that you read and looked up to um, uh, or or that sort of stuff?
1: Well, we go back to uh, good writing is good writing. I I find it, I find once you start writing, you start reading in a different way. Maybe you found this too and whatever kind of uh, writing it is, whether it's uh, another trade book in psychology, whether it's a paper whether it's a novel or an article in New Yorker, or something I find myself paying attention to the sentence structure and the vocabulary and the grammar in ways that I wasn't doing when I wasn't trying to write something that was explicitly about the writing um, and so I've been inspired by I think a number of a number of approaches and Oliver Sacks comes up again I thought he was an absolutely beautiful writer uh, but certainly not a, a model for my own book because i'm not of, i'm not of a and i'm not and i don't have a, a big drawer full of fascinating case studies it's got to be a different a different book um and yeah i'm trying to think who, who else i would have read i mean there's some beautiful writing out there there's there's peter godfrey smith's book other minds which i found so extraordinary about
0: on cephalopods, uh,
1: cephalopods and, and the octopus um, but perhaps the book that that was most influential uh, for me was way back was Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained. And this was I read it in the early 90s again. So it, it was unlike the Edelman Tononi book, which sort of let, set out a template for what I thought I could do myself. Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained, was incredibly provocative, um, incredibly articulate. Um, beautifully insightful and and it's been a long time i've read bits of it recently again you know i read it then didn't go back to it for a long time but it had a huge impact and i think it had that impact uh because of the way it was written its use of analogy its use of argument and people also talk about uh hofstader's girdle echo which is a brilliant book too but but you know, i prefer to focus on on Dennett's consciousness explained i think that that for me was was a real landmark
0: yeah i uh i'm sympathetic to that as well geb gets a lot of press but i think Dennett's just such a vivid writer so good um let's see um what was i gonna ask you about here oh yeah here's here's one thing that i'd be interested to know sort of bringing it back to to consciousness and your development post San Diego. So what do you think are the biggest changes in the way you think about consciousness that have occurred in the last, you know, 10, 15 years? So what what have you learned, you know, empirical study or otherwise that has altered your position on a crucial aspect of the nature of consciousness? Probably two things, Uh, that when I started
1: uh, at Sussex, so when I left San Diego, that's now about 12 years ago, I was still very much focused on these integrated information ideas, measures, measurements of complexity, integration information, and so on. Um, over the last 10 years or so, I've become increasingly interested, in, and now as a majority of my my work is on the framework of predictive coding and predictive processing. And this was an idea that was around in perceptual neuroscience and perceptual psychology for a long time, the idea that perception is a process of inference. It's not a kind of bottom-up readout of sensory information. It's a process by which the brain makes its Bayesian best guess about the causes of sensory inputs. And uh, what we perceive is this Bayesian best guess. It's a, It's a prediction about the causes of sensory signals. That, for me, was a fascinating bridge between mechanism and phenomenology again it's it's interesting now because thinking about theories of consciousness predictive coding or predictive processing is not a theory of consciousness in fact i've just written a long paper with the philosopher jacob who was sort of making this point that it's not a theory of consciousness it's a general theory of how brains do what they do that sort of originated in perception but is now more generally applied to action to cognition and so on um but it provides a rich conceptual language for thinking about why conscious experiences are the way they are. You know, when you hallucinate, maybe that's because you have over, overactive perceptual priors that overwhelm sensory data in specific ways. Um, why is a visual experience different from an emotional experience? Well, it could be that the predictions about sensory signals have different uh, conditional structures. So... You, a visual prediction is, is going to, I can move my eyes and the sensory consequences of moving my eyes will alter sensory signals in a way predicted by the spatial structure of my environment. That's not true for an emotion. Things like emotions are much more about the physiological regulation of the body. So you can start to articulate these, these bridges between mechanism and phenomenology in interesting ways. So that was one. And the other is sort of very tightly related to that, which is the importance of the body in conscious experience and in selfhood. Um, A lot of the early experimental work on consciousness quite reasonably focused on vision. We're very visual animals. Visual stimuli are very easy to manipulate in in the lab. We have all sorts of of wonderful paradigms for things like binocular rivalry, where you can change what people are aware of, where the stimulus stays the same. We can mask stimuli so they're still sensed but not perceived. But there's more to consciousness than than just vision. And especially when you think about what the experience of being a self is, rather than what the experience of, let's say, a red object is, the body is at the center of it. And not just the body as an object in the world, but the body as the thing the brain is always, all the time, trying to keep alive. And so the idea that, that actually I've been that i explore in in this book the new book which is coming out next year um is how far do those roots go how far down into the nature of of animals and humans as living organisms do we need to go to explain the nature of conscious self and and consciousness as a whole You, you could go the whole way and say that you know You have to be alive to be conscious. Now, I'm not sure if we need to go that far, but I certainly think that we can only understand the structure of our conscious experiences of self and of the world in light of our nature as living systems. So those, yeah, those for me are the two ideas that that have ended up being a single idea about how best we can understand conscious experiences and also what they're for. You know, wh- Why do we have conscious experiences in the first place? What functional role do they play?
0: Yeah, do we maybe want to wrap up here with a little bit more of a teaser of your book and just say a little bit more about, so that's that's a core idea, a core part of the argument there. Um, what else can people expect to, to see in that upcoming book? <laughs>
1: that's kind of, I mean,
0: actually probably a lot more of the stuff
1: we've been talking about so so i haven't written a a single author trade book before so it was a, it was a daunting thing to do and it like, like all these things took a long time i started it over four years ago um and there was this one line in it where, where i refer to a particular episode and i kept having to update that line because the year kept getting you know, further away so it was two years ago three years ago four years ago this happened and that was always a frustrating moment, but it's basically done now. And so I think we'll come out in September. But it's really a, a, an approach to consciousness that that um, integrates what we've been saying. So instead of trying to come up with one big solution to this big, scary mystery of consciousness, you know, what David Chalmers would call the hard problem of how, why and how any physical system should underpin or be identical with the conscious experience, I, with tongue-in-cheek, talk about the real problem of consciousness, which is how do we explain phenomenological properties in terms of mechanisms, uh, and the ambition and hope being that as we do more and more of that, the hard problem may not get solved, but it will dissolve in, in a sort of loose analogy to the way in which uh, the mystery of life dissolved. and We didn't find the, the spark of life, but we no longer felt any need to look for one once we started treating life as a constellation of properties rather than a single big scary mystery. So I take that approach and and go through um, uh, three different ways of thinking about consciousness. Conscious level, this difference between wake, sleep, anesthesia, and and then conscious content, this idea of perception as a controlled hallucination, as something that depends on predictive processing in, in ways. But always emphasizing the phenomenology, then a conscious self, this experience of being a person and, and the grounding, the deep grounding in physiology. And then in the last part of the book, we we take these ideas and we ask what, what they say about consciousness in other animals, um, what they say about free will, and, and what they say about the possibility of conscious machines.
0: That sounds very fascinating. I look forward to reading that. Um, I love your approach of uh, digging into the real problem. I think that the Chalmers distinction between the easy problem and the hard problem is maybe one of the most compelling yet useless distinctions. Uh, it tells you exactly, it frames the problem in a way that makes total sense, but has turned out to be very difficult to make progress on. Uh, and so I think reframing uh, the, the, what the real problem is is going to be uh, a am vi- I'm, I'm certainly, uh, you know, I've read a little bit of your Aeon article, um, which I assume gives, you know, sort of the, you know, sort of the genesis of that. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops in the book. Um, I will uh, look forward to, to reading that and sharing that with other people. So thank you very much for taking the time to uh, have this conversation today. And uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to you.
1: You're very welcome. It was a great to chat to you too. Thanks for thanks for having me.
0: That was my conversation with Anil Seth. I hope you enjoyed. Um, yeah, I I've always been drawn to these big interdisciplinary thinkers who are trying to bridge disconnects between fields of knowledge, and I certainly think Anil fits into that. And um, I am excited to see. What he does with it for the field of consciousness studies, particularly in his upcoming book um, that is Being You, The New Science of Consciousness, should be coming out in August of 2021. So do keep an eye out for that. Anyway, uh, if you want to connect with me, you can follow me on Twitter. You can sign up for my newsletter at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. Um, You can take a look at my other podcast. I've got another podcast. It's um, about travel. That's called Notes from the Field. Um, And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.